And while you get situated, I'm going to go ahead and read a verse from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by which is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dwelling wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning. Uh, We are fully aware um, of how you've brought us to a community of unity. And we know that within that community, God, there's diverse thought, opinions, and backgrounds. Um, And we praise you, God, that as your verse, as your word says here in Ephesians, God, that your death has broken down the division that once existed in society. And you brought us together into one community, into one unified group. And throughout time and history, you used people, flawed, broken individuals, but Lord, by grace, holy. And you used them to pass down practices, routines, beliefs, Lord, to us that 2,000 years from the writing of your word, Lord, we can be together this morning. And we thank you, God, for the freedom we have to be here and to celebrate. That we're not huddled behind a closed door, secretly gathering together, God, but we're here. Um, And we praise you for that uniqueness of our experience here. And we pray, Jesus, that you would help us to understand that, to know that, And God, to to further understand what it means to live and exist together and do life together, Jesus. So inspire us this morning. Teach us from your word. Help us to understand more of what this community you've built is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, church, how we doing? You guys doing all right? Does it usually rain this much in Central Oregon? I don't, like, I, I talk about it with my wife, and when I moved here, Joel promised me, like, 300 days of sunshine, and I'm like... Was that just because you needed me to work in the school? Like, is this kind of a bait-and-switch thing going on here? Uh, but uh, 
I was, I was talking, I don't know, we only lived, I've only lived here for three years. My wife grew up in Bend, and so the rain were like, is this what it's normally like? Not a problem, not complaining. It'd be totally like an American thing to like, be like, we're in a drought. Oh, this is too much rain. Uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting to see that, but I, I, uh, I really enjoy it. It's, uh, I think it's tough having little kids and being like, the God, the rain, we can't go outside and all this stuff like that. But at the same time, it's kind of nice just to have like a nice torrential downpour. I can turn the water off and I don't have to irrigate my lawn, which is, you know, probably a really dad thing to say, and that, that's good. So um, I don't know if it rains this much, but we're enjoying it. We kind of like the rain. It reminds us of the valley a little bit. Um, so let's talk about what we're going to do today. So we're t- starting a new series this summer uh, about the church. And as Michael kind of talked about, we're going to try to tackle some big questions um, regarding the church and how it functions and how we got to where we are today and the good and the bad, um, and kind of take a diagnostic of what the church is. Now, I think it's fair to say that the church that we experience today in Redmond, Oregon, in the USA, is a different experience from the church of the first century, both in expectation and in practice in many ways. And yet there's certain unifying qualities about it. But if I confess myself, in growing up, uh, I didn't grow up in the church. And so church is the idea of church and the name church. It all just kind of has various connotations to where we're at in life. Maybe some of you grew up going to church. Maybe you were a part of one of those cool, hip, non-denominational churches that was like, we're not the church, or the church is in the building, the church is the people, right? And so the conversation on how that church goes and how we establish that and what it means, the nuances within definitions and practice, all of that are things that we want to explore. But if you were to ask me, what is the church? I would quote uh, my most favorite theologian, which you already know isn't actually a theologian, because I only say that when I'm not going to mention a theologian, Michael Scott from The Office, where he said, in some ways, I know exactly what to do, but in a much more real way, I have no idea what to do, okay? And I think that that's an honest critique of like, where we stand with the church. Yeah, okay, we get it, but we also don't really understand it in a lot of ways, How do we get to where we're at? How did 2,000 years ago from the writing of Scripture, how did we arrive today at this method, both in practice, in liturgy, in theology, leadership, all those questions? How do we get here and how do we arrive here? Now also, I think it's worth noting that my experience with church has ebbed and flowed. I have had moments where being a part of a church was the most life-giving experience of my life. And I have had times where being a part of a church was really difficult and really hard and confusing. Um, and we've all had different experiences. And so from, from my past, when I got saved and started going to churches, and I realized really early on there were these two churches in my small town abandoned, and both of them had totally different views on salvation. And I figured out, like, what is this perspective of, like, salvation? Is it really that different? And, and these are two different churches. They're, like, a mile apart from each other, but one is really big and one is really small. And does that have to do with salvation or practice? And so early on, my experience with church was really kind of like, like, what is the difference here? Like, why are these two churches both trying to reach people for Jesus, but yet fundamentally opposed to each other and actually vehemently discussed how different they were from each other? And then uh, I went to college I started working in different parachurch ministries. And then I had another conversation, which is, what are these things called parachurch ministries? And I'd grown up being like, oh, watch out for the parachurch ministries. They're not really doing the things of the church. But then I was like, yeah, but they're like going and meeting people and talking to people on campus and doing crazy events. Like, isn't that part of what the church is supposed to do? 
Um, and then the church goes, they never, they never bring anybody to church. They just go out and they just kind of do fun stuff and goof around. They're not supposed to like, bring people to church. And I just got this different relationship of like, okay, then there's a church and there's these other organizations and these aren't the church and this is the church. And so I started working with different campus ministries. And then I uh, stumbled upon a movement in, in Eugene, in a church that I was a part of, in a, in a house church. And it was this awesome group of college students. And we were all like, Hanging out, young 20-somethings, super vibrant, super emotional, all single. So you know how that's going to go. Uh, and we're all in this apartment, and we're like eating food together, and we're worshiping together, and um, we're learning about the Bible, and it was this awesome experience. And then it grew, and then I went on staff, and then I had this horrible falling out, and I resigned. And I was like, okay, now what is this church? Now my experience in church and peeking under the hood of a movement is not desirable in any way, shape, or form. So now what? What is this church? And that led me through like a year of darkness where I was just kind of like, I don't know what church is. I don't really think I understand fully who Jesus is. Was I just doing this work as a pastor? But was I really walking with Jesus? And it's amazing how life-giving the church can be and then also how life-taking it is in some instances. And that process lasted for like a year of just kind of like, sort of detoxing, like, what is church? Like, what does it mean to go to church and be a part of the church? And then over time, I started to kind of get to this balanced perspective of like, okay, the church is weirdly full of many people who are very broken, that make mistakes, that screw up. And yet it's holy, and it's beautiful, and it's personified as this bride of Christ. And so I had to think about Going to church, being a part of a church, what does that mean? Which led me to Michael to kind of thinking about this series on the heels of spiritual disciplines. What do we know about church? What do we need to know about church? How can we more fully understand this gift that God has given to us? Um, and so we're going to talk about the church in this series, and, and here is really our heart. Um, there's kind of been some negative consequences of both postmodernism and issues wrought from megachurch culture and misguided evangelism, we face a number of people who are deconstructing their faith. And we'll talk a little bit about that, although that would probably be a whole separate conversation. And are searching for a spiritual experience that warns their devotion. In this landscape, and for entirely different reasons, many are asking the question, why should I even go to church? Or why church? Our hope is to establish the church's significance as an assembly of Jesus' followers whose distinguishing mark beyond worship and doctrine was sacrificial love and faithfulness towards each other. We not only want to answer the question of why church, but if the church is thriving and healthy, what does it look like? And we're going to cover a bunch of different passages. We're going to have a lot of application, but nothing around here is going to change. Like, we're not going to, like, shift some big movement away from the way we've been doing things. What we would actually ask is that you press into things that are already here, um, that we're already doing, pre-gathering prayer, being a part of a community, coming on Sunday mornings and being together, serving each other, being faithful to each other. We'd actually want you to press into that. But some of the subjects we really want to talk about are how is God's church a vehicle for God's justice? How is the church a creative community or a remnant of Christ? How is the church this royal family or priest to one another? Uh, how is it an example of healthy leadership? How is it an example of holy resistance to present, system of, present systems of inequity in some cultural perspectives? How is this church the future people of heaven? 
How is it diverse and multi-ethnic? And how is it this rhythm of grace? We come in on Sunday morning, we experience these different practices. Where does that come from? And how do we practice that? But before we get there, I want to introduce you to somebody. Um, he's going to be on the screen here in just a second. Does anybody know who this is? If you do, I'll give you one of the books from Michael's secret bookshelf back there. Okay? Anybody? You'd have to be a seasoned saint to know this. That means you'd have to be old. Okay, uh, but anyway, so... First of all, how cool are baby blue baseball jerseys? Aren't those awesome? Like, that was like, a, that was like a movement. Like, every team had a baby blue jersey back in, like, the 60s or 70s. This is a guy named Bert Blylevin. Uh, anybody now ringing a bell? Anybody? This, if, you don't, if you know, it's going to ruin my, my story. So just say you don't know, and I can, you know, blow your mind later on. Okay, cool. Perfect. All right. So this guy is Bert Blylevin. He was a pitcher in the 70s. He played for three different teams. And I had never heard of him. I did not know who he was. And I would consider myself pretty uh, astute as baseball history. Um, and uh, the story of Burt Blyland is that he's super underappreciated. An individual who would have to wait 20 years to be elected to the Hall of Fame alongside a guy named Sandy Olimar, Sandy Olimar who only had to wait seven years to be elected to the Hall of Fame. And the criteria for a Hall of Fame, to be like a Hall of Fame pitcher, you'd have to be in the big threes. That means like 300 wins or 3,000 strikeouts. And Burt Blyland finished with a career line of 287 wins and 3,700 strikeouts. He had a 96 war, which means wins above replacement, which means if you compare him to a minor league player of the same caliber, he was worth 96 more wins than that individual, which is really high, okay? He struck out more batters than Tom Seaver and Walter Johnson, who are, and he is fourth on the all-time strikeout list. So Nolan Ryan's number one, and there's a couple people, Steve Carlton and then Burt Blylevin. He has a higher wins above replacement. He's worth more wins than Warren Spahn or Nolan Ryan. He was a phenomenal pitcher, but for 20 years, no one knew anything about him. Retired in 1992 and didn't get elected to the Hall of Fame until 2011. Now, if you can't tell, I love the story of an underdog. I love the Disney perspective of the team that comes in. There's no way, there's no possibility they're going to win. There's no way they're ever going to be noticed. And they do this amazing thing. Now, what does this have to do with church? You're going to have to wait till the end. I know you're dying to know, but you're going to have to wait, okay? Just remember that this guy, underappreciated, all right? But arguably, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. But elected to the Hall of Fame long after he was, uh, he played so let's get into some stuff about the church, and we'll get back and we'll talk about him in just a second in his cool baby blue jersey, all right? Let's talk about this term church. The, the, the Greek word for church is the term ekklesia, and it has both secular and spiritual significance. Ekklesia in Greek means an assembly of people convened at a public place or council for the purposes of deliberating. It's an ancient Greece term for a community of people who they would call into the city to discuss political matters. The political structure of Greece at the time was such that every land-owning male was called to the assembly, and they would all sit there and debate how things should go politically, if they should go to war or not. And it was chaos. It was like, one week they'd say they want to go to war, and everybody would go, yeah! And the next week they'd go, eh, never mind, we don't want to do it anymore. Okay? And it would ebb and flow because everybody could weigh in all the time. Anybody could propose anything from the community. It's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, as assembly of the Israelites or gathering place. We would take this term and apply the spiritual significance as a popular meeting, especially a religious 
congregation, assembly, or church. It is an assembly or a gathering of people together. Furthermore, there's another picture of the church, which is this term bride. Jesus gives this picture in both the New Testament. He gives a husband and wife example, and he says, just as the husband is supposed to serve and care for the wife, Jesus cares for his church. And later on in Revelation, he talks about the bride of Christ as the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. There's this unity aspect of the people of God and Jesus being the spouse of the church. So two different kind of perspectives there. We have this ecclesia, this gathering of people together, and we have this bride of Christ picture. And I want to say this up front. Before we get into the nuance and the weeds of it, and I say, hey, let's go to church, and you go, oh, Carson, we, nobody goes to church. We are the church, okay? Uh, yes, both are true, Right? If we were to say we go to a church, guys, we go to a gathering of people that are together. Yes, it's a building in a sense, but it is much more the people who come and are together in unity. Now, um, the, the, and this term, the, the bride, has essential significance for who we are. The bride analogy reminds us that the Old Testament, Testament covenant that God makes with Israel, and the bride verbiage reminds us that Christ is now in this unique covenant with the people of God. And now continues his church as the gospel is opened up to all peoples everywhere. So in Ephesians, whereas the Israelites would have believed the covenant existed only with Israel, and some Reformed theologians would go, yeah, well now the church has replaced Israel in the covenant, I would say and I would argue that there's a unity of all people. Okay, Whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, that unity together in, the Christ, in Christ, that's the church and the bride. And so we're going to look through the book of Acts, We're going to take some time, and we're going to truck through this conversation around this early church picture. So go ahead and flip to Acts chapter 1. So we're going to take on some some large chunks of passages just to kind of set us up. While you're flipping to Acts, let me give you a quick historical analysis of what Acts is. Acts is a historical account of the early church. It's not necessarily meant to be application in nature. It's more of a picture. If you were to take a book and read about the early church or take a picture of it and look at it and say, what were they doing? Here is Acts that tells us how they lived and what they did. And it's a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Luke, being a doctor, has a historical nature about how he approaches these conversations around Jesus. So his books are much more historical in nature, giving us a picture of what Jesus did, what he taught, and how the early church functioned. So let's look in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read through a chunk of scripture. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit. In the first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered, from the not to, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when well, they had come together, verse 6, and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, which was the messianic picture, like Messiah comes back, Israel is given back its authority, they throw off the Roman occupation. So he says, is this the time? Is this going to happen? 
And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, which I would just love the picture of that. They're kind of like this. Or just, and all of a sudden these two guys on the sides are like, hey, what are you doing? Jesus is going to come back soon. I just like the pictures. They're just like standing up and there's two people just, like, just appear on their sides, you know? Let's live over to chapter two. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Chapter two, verse two. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as fire upon them, and, and fire rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Pentecost kind of brought all these people together at one point in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. This is important to catch the significance of this. So Pentecost, as the tribes are scattered out with the Exodus, at Pentecost, all these different people come back to Jerusalem. And in that, you have people from all over um, Asia Minor and the Middle East. They all come together into Jerusalem. And each one hears their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that each one of us in his own native language, each, each of us, that we hear each of us in his own native language? And it goes on to talk about who exactly was there. Verse 12, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others are mocking and say they are filled with new wine. And then Peter gives a long and impassioned sermon that if we were to, get, to teach that alone would take us probably, I don't know, six years to actually unpack everything in that sermon. So let's go over to verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So at this point, we don't know a lot about the church. We, have, we know a little bit, okay? One, the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Two, it's a diverse group of people. People from all over the region are coming into one place and hearing his teaching. It has leaders, or at least teachers, but maybe leaders too. There's a lot of people that are a part of it, 3,000 souls. And there appears to be pushback but not as much as we would assume. And it appears that the church is sort of in this new phase, this unspoken territory, this new ground, sort of like a honeymoon period of sorts. It's new, it's exciting, it's unpredictable. It's new territory for all involved. Now, we know that in the future, this new community, as it spreads out, all the region is going to face challenges. It's going to deal with persecution, leadership challenges, outlining who should be in charge. It's going to have doctrinal debates and arguments. Its leaders are going to get into heated debates and disagreements over who should lead, 
and when and how this message should be preached and to whom. Negative and destructive culture ideas are going to infiltrate the church so much the church is going to have to clearly outline stances and practices regarding money, qualifications for leaders, sex, marriage, family dynamics, raising children, dealing with difficult family members, all the while continuing to be a community of care and love so as to build God's kingdom and mirror the kingdom of God in their relationships. Strange individuals are going to come into the congregation and lead them astray. People are going to lose homes, jobs, and their lives, family members and friends. They're going to struggle with an oppressive government and an established religious hierarchy who are passionately opposed to this movement. Letters are going to be written. Sermons are going to be preached. People are going to be imprisoned or die. But for now, where we're at, the church is brand new. Now, this new community, what are they doing? What's their identity? If we look at historically and just say, okay, what, what are their practices? How do they operate without any of the other stuff going on? This is pre-like all the epistles. Paul hasn't even gotten saved yet. This is brand new. What were they doing? Look in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if we are flying over the top of the church and we look down from 30,000 feet and just go, okay, what the heck are they doing? Acts 2.42 gives us a summary. It says this is their community. This is how they would describe it. This is what it looked like. Um, but I want to point out, as many like, different commentaries have pointed out, this is the church in its honeymoon phase. And we all know what the honeymoon phase is like for anything, whether that be a marriage or your first few weeks with a new child or a new job or moving to a new location. It's great, right? You're like, this is awesome. Like, this has switched everything up. I'm really liking it. My wife and I, we went on our honeymoon. We went by ourselves, obviously, to Cancun, Mexico. Not Cancun, Cabo San Lucas. Cancun's too much of a party town. We went to Cabo San Lucas and said, uh, we had an all-inclusive resort with like a private pool. We spent a week there, just the two of us, right? Obviously, pre-kids, everything. We were just hanging out. We were just being young and we were being married. It was great. And maybe if you're like us, you had your first real marriage argument on your honeymoon. Anybody else? No, just, okay, all right, okay, thank you. Thank you for your authenticity, I appreciate it. The rest of you are all lying in some way, okay? <laughs> in your first, like, big disagreement, you're like, oh, man, this is what marriage is like, okay? And you come back to life, and normalcy sets in, right? It's not a bad thing, it's just that life starts. You, know, you watch all these reality dating shows on Netflix, and they take, like, these couples, and they go, we're going to send you away to Mexico for a week, and have you get to know each other, like, haven't met before, and they're like, now go to this location and, and learn about each other, and then now they have to come back, and they have to decide if they're going to stay together. Well, yeah! Are you kidding me? Like, send a young couple away to Mexico and have them just learn about each other for a week? Wonderful. And they come back, and everything, like, implodes, like, immediately. And it's like, yeah, because life is not like that. 
all the time. Life is not as simple or as calm as the honeymoon. But the honeymoon is great. It's wonderful. It's simple. You're not really worried or concerned about things. You just get to be together. And to an extent, that's kind of where the church is at. Now, down the road is where normalcy sets in. How is this church going to interact with the world around it? How is it going to appoint leaders? How is it going to deal with the weird personalities and all the character flaws and all the conflict and all the people vying for power and being selfishly motivated, which was a problem back then, but thank God it's not a problem anymore. So that's good. Um, we don't have to worry about that. It's wonderful. So, but the early church, if we look at this time, it's awesome to look at and just take it for what it is. So John Stott in his commentary, he points out the church is really doing four things right now, or has four identities. One, it's a learning church. It's devoted to the apostles' teaching. Look in verse uh, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they're learning. There's this connection between intellectual growth and Holy Spirit growth. This teaching is authenticated by miracles. And the Holy Spirit of God leads God's people to submit to God. What I love about it, though, is it doesn't say that they devote themselves to a 20 to 30-minute teaching about the Bible. And they did some songs and then they got some coffee, and then they, they just left. They went back to their normal life. For them, this was all it was. And so there's this, there's this kind of this verbiage that goes, yeah, teaching and fellowship, they were like equal. There wasn't like a time constraint around. It's just like they were just doing these things, just a part of their natural rhythm. They wanted to learn, and obviously the apostles have a great perspective on, on who Jesus is, and so it's worth noting. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. It means common, common life. Uh, the common life of the church is displayed in God's relationship in the, tr- in the Trinity, and so it gives us this picture of community. And then in verse 45, it says this as part of the communal nature of it. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, here's the good news. Jesus doesn't mandate this behavior, okay? He doesn't say, thou shalt sell all their possessions and give to everybody. But because of the community nature of it, they just did it. They were just concerned with loving the people around them. And in this fellowship, they would say, somebody has a need, let me sell what this is and use that money to help this person. So it was a part of their nature just as a community. Okay? Even though this is voluntary, Christians have to make these conscious decisions on God in this matter. They are called to practice generosity, especially towards the poor and the needy. Fellowship affected the pocketbook. But this is not communism. It's not saying, like, everybody's got all this stuff and it's all equal, it's mandated. It was just the nature of their community that they were doing. We cannot fully really experience this fulfillment of life unless our community life is meaningful. This is a picture of their life, their rhythm. And this passage implies, as a summary passage, because it's a summary, right? It's saying, like, this is their identity. It wasn't like, today, they did this. It was like, this is what they did all the time in their community. This loving church displayed with the common good and loving and caring for the people around them. Three, it's a worshiping church. They did this breaking of bread and prayer at public meetings. And it's likely the breaking of bread can refer to a common meal. Some churches are kind of like in this mode too where they go, well, communion, yes, is this at the table right here, the bread and the cup, but also communion is just getting together with people and eating a meal together. That is communion, community. And uh, joy and awe are healthy and formal and informality. 
The Lord's Supper welcomes people to the face. So there's this worship happening. There's this being together. There's this prayer meeting. There's eating together, having a meal. And then four, it was an evangelistic church. We're not going to separate Acts 2.42 from 47. All right? So they're doing the breaking of bread and prayers. They're teaching and in fellowship. And in 47, it says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as they're just doing this rhythm, people were drawn to that community. They wanted to be a part of it. It was appealing. And I added two things to the end of what John Stott said. So those first four are all him. And five, I talked about it's a Holy Spirit-led church. And I'll, I'm going to circle back to that, and, but I'm going to tell you six first. Six, the church had a good reputation. Let's just like ponder that for a second. In the community of this time, people looked at the church and said, now there's something I can be a part of. There's something I want to be a part of. Their community, their way of living, their operating, it drew people into it. Today, can we say the same about the church? Does it have a good reputation? Or is it too insular? Is it too, like, country club-like? Get your stuff together, clean yourself up, and then come to church. Or are we more open and available for people that have needs to meet them where they're at? As a Holy Spirit-led church, number five, what I want to point out to you is that what's really cool about this, it's just like the fruit of the Spirit, I would argue, and that this is the deal. You don't spend all your time going, oh my gosh, I want to be a more patient person. So you walk around going, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. Waiting for that time when you're like, ah, oh, no, I lost it. And you're like, oh man, now I'm not a patient person. You have to replace that behavior with something, but you also have to know that the Holy Spirit, as you follow and pursue Jesus, is going to manifest these fruits in your life. And I feel like the church, or I would argue, is the same way. As the church grows and presses into the Holy Spirit and his identity for their life, you're going to see these things happen. The church is going to have a good reputation. People are going to be drawn to it. They're going to want to be a part of it. People are going to start giving to each other and caring for each other. That's all about that identity. So this isn't mandated, no, but it is saying that when the Holy Spirit is reigning in a church, this is what we're going to see. This kind of behavior and this kind of community. So let's not put the cart before the horse. Instead, let's pursue the Holy Spirit, pursue Jesus, walk with him, and know that this is the attitude that arrives out of that behavior, or out of that belief. Okay, this is the behavior that comes up. Okay, that was a lot. I talked very fast. I threw a lot at you, okay? So let's come up from air a little bit. You guys all still with me? Okay. Okay, some of you. Oh, boy. Uh, that was a lot of scripture, a lot of information. I want you guys to stay with me for just a few more minutes. And what does this have to do with us? If it's descriptive, if it's not mandated, it's not a rule, what does it have to do with us? To speak frankly, the church and the community is in a really tough moment right now. And some of this is self-inflicted due to some sort of cultural ideology or leadership. The church in some ways, in some communities, is more mafia-like than community-like supports the leadership unquestioningly, insulates them, and then when things are going wrong down the surface, they kind of hide it or brush it back. But now in our, our current media culture, people are finding things out about different churches and different organizations, and it's sad, and you have this mixed feeling, right? You're like, well, I want churches to be accountable, but I also want people to know that the church never was supposed to claim to be this perfect, clean-cut organization, right? It's broken. And so people are in crisis, People are more lonely than ever. People desire community more than ever. And the church, in some senses, is, generally speaking, is, is kind of failing at that. 
about bringing people in to be a part of the community. And there's a lot of reasons why postmodern thoughts, the lack of truth, that certainly has done some things to the church. Um, Unhealthy deconstructionism, that like breaking down of your faith to kind of get it down to its bare bones and then building it back up, that process. Their deconstruction nature is such that people kind of tear down the church and then walk away from it and never try to come back and think about how does this church work? How is it supposed to be? And so they let their, their negative consequences drive them completely out the door. The church as a subculture and a weapon of politics has become more prevalent than ever. Celebrityism and cult of personality around pastors and the elevation of individual achievement and gifting over collective, over collective gifting and achievement, and then kind of a twisted idea of what success looks like. If you grew up in, in, the, in the modern evangelical movement, like many of us did, what you saw was kind of like a seeker-friendly model of church, which wasn't bad, I don't think. Bringing people in, getting people into the room, hearing the gospel, it was awesome. But part of it was like, let's just keep getting more and more people in the chairs, Let's keep stocking this place up until it's bursting at the seams. Then we'll start another gathering. Then we'll have that one bursting at the seams. We'll just keep going and going and going. But we weren't fully aware of what success looked like. We'd say, don't worry about the numbers. But sickly, we were like, but worry about the numbers, right? Numbers are pretty good. Let's not talk about them, but let's talk about how great these numbers are, right? And I think that that's understandable. It's fun to be a part of a big movement, It's fun to be in a room with thousands of people all praising and worshiping God as this mirror of heaven, but it sort of comes at the cost of real authentic discipleship sometimes, real authentic community and relationships. We don't want Redeemers ever to be a place where people can come, never meet anybody, and leave. Instead, we would desire that this church kind of presses into being this community, this attractive community by following Jesus and following his desire for our life. Now, I know what you're all thinking. What the heck does this have to do with Bert Blylevin? You forgot about him, didn't you? He's back. Uh, so what does this have to do with this guy? Well, I was, in tandem with doing this sermon, I was reading through this book about the Baseball 100, and what struck me about it was this guy was underappreciated because he didn't fit the mold of what a pitcher or a player should be. He wasn't batting 330, hitting dingers. He wasn't throwing 100 miles an hour and striking people out left and right. Instead, he just consistently put together a really quality career. He pitched for a bunch of different teams. He had 3,700 strikeouts. He had a great career. And it wasn't until later when people started to examine like, the bias that exists in Hall of Fame numbers. Like, when you see somebody like, hitting home runs every single game, you're like, nah, that's a Hall of Famer right there. It doesn't matter if they do it for two seasons or for one season. You're like, that's the kind of player that people are attracted to. But he just put together a great career. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't this explosive, like, crowd-gathering group that came to see Burt by 11 pitch. He just did what was in front of him really well. And so it is for the church. I believe that, or I would argue, that the church needs to be less concerned with the flash and the glitz and the glamour and the being put together and instead embrace the grittiness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and put together a really great reputation, put together a really great practice of life, that we would see people totally pressing into their community and their relationships with Jesus, that no one would be allowed to, or no one would be allowed, but no one would be able to deconstruct their faith by themselves on an island. 
but rather talk through the realities of following Jesus together in community. And I think that God has, has brought us into that place now, and the church has a really unique opportunity to be on the cusp of something really great. I, I do honestly, genuinely believe that as much as we look at culture and go, oh my gosh, it's so opposed to Jesus, it's, you know, it's going this other way, I think it's a profound opportunity for the church to be more active than ever. And so when we press into that, I think there's an opportunity for the kingdom of God that's right in front of us in our community. And so I also want to point out that this is a gift. When we stand back and just critique and tear things down and talk about, oh, the church has all these flaws and it's all messed up and it's all this big business, that criticism is a criticism of the bride of Christ. I don't think I would allow anybody to speak that way about my wife. And Bonhoeffer points this out. At his point in this conversation, he brings up this idea in this book, Life Together, which is a great book. I don't usually like to quote Bonhoeffer because it's just too convicting. It's like, oh man, I'm not even doing anything. All right, this guy's crazy. Anyway, he is in a uh, internment camp in Nazi Germany. But before that, he's a part of an underground pastoral training school in Nazi fascist Germany. So already, we're, I mean, already, you've got to be convicted by that. I mean, come on. So, and I want to speak that, that this community is a gift. You may not always look at it that way. It's got flaws. It's got quirky personalities. It's got things that we're like, eh, this is weird, okay? But it's a gift. And Bonhoeffer says this. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God, and that any day it may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in a community with Christian brethren. That's from someone who is an insular small community hiding from the government. Now, we are pressed, that's true. We're being pressed from culture, but we are not oppressed. That's real oppression, hiding in a bunker, training pastors, risking your life to get the gospel out. And Bonhoeffer, now a lot of us will go, we, we got, if we're really going to follow Jesus, we've got to do that. We've got to go to like the three, four corners of the earth and just hunker down and hide, and that's real Christianity. Bonhoeffer says, no, that's not, that's, don't do that. That's not what we're saying. Rather, be really thankful that God has placed you in a season where you don't have to do that. Instead, enjoy the life with each other. Accept the community for the gift that it is to each other. And stop tearing it down and critiquing it. And stop getting into petty arguments about things that don't really matter about the church. It doesn't matter what color the walls are. It really doesn't. I don't want to go to Bonhoeffer and say, yeah, we just have this big conversation about what color the walls should be in our church. Um, No, that's not fair. And it's not what we should be focused on. Instead, let's press into who we are in Jesus. Let's press into our identity with him. Let's practice our disciplines and, 
and walk with life and, and parent our kids really well and be in community together and accept that for the gift that it is. So to close out, here's what I want you to leave you with today. I hope that at the end of this series, our goal will be that you discover a deeper love for the church through this series. You'll remember to show up and celebrate and embrace your role as a builder of God's kingdom. And two things for you this week that I would like um, to encourage you to practice. You can close your Bibles and I can just we'll kind of tone it down here. This week, in your group, or with your family, or with your roommates, take time to pause and ask yourself, why do we go to church? And answer honestly. Some of you are like, I don't know. I just have always done it. Why do we go to church? And take time, if you really want to, to talk to a friend or a coworker who has walked away from church and ask them why they don't go. And not judgment-wise, just I'd love to hear why. And maybe in that moment, you'll have an opportunity to say, I'm really sorry. The church was not supposed to be that. And then second, in your time of prayer this week, pray three things each time. Thank God for your Christian community here and the blessing that it is. Pray for the health of your community. And lift up those you know to be serving Jesus in a hostile land. I have a friend of mine named Sean who is currently serving Jesus in Palestine. Um, early on in our time at the church, he was like, my, goal is, my, my, my life's goal is to be preaching the gospel in Mosul, Iraq. And I was like, oh, bro, uh, that's awesome. I'm not coming with you, but that's great, okay? <laughs> and so he sends me emails, and in his email that he sends, he has to send like a coded language so that, so that people won't pick up on what he's saying. So he spells words with numbers and with different letters so that we can understand he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about God, but that no one that's trying to pick up his emails can find out that he's a missionary there. And be praying for those individuals. So if you don't have anybody else you know, be praying for Sean. He's on the ground in Palestine, working in a hostile land. So, in time of prayer, thank God for your Christian community and the blessing that it is. Pray for the health of this community here and lift up those you know to be serving Jesus in a hostile land. Let's pray. Jesus, we are your church. We are your people. We are your, we are your, um, your family. God, we are your bride. And Lord, we, we ask today, God, in, just, in total simplicity and authenticity that you would remind us of the beauty of what that is. That we wouldn't grow weary of doing good and being together. We would instead practice life together. We would instead embrace the community as the people of God you've placed in our lives. That we would not grow critical. Knowing that criticism, in a lot of senses, God, is more destructive in nature than helpful. Remind us that you have built this community, you're building this community, that, that you alone and your death on the cross divide, tore down what was once divided. The kingdom of God was not just for the people who had it all together. It was the people who were broken and from far off lands. That it wasn't about an ethnic identity or a nationalist identity. It was about your love directed towards us. And that was our identity. And so I pray, Jesus, that as you tore down those walls, that in, in our hearts, God, you would remove those dividing lines that we place in our life. And remind us of the goodness that exists with each other. 
Help us to see the good and celebrate the good. And we pray, God, that we would see what the early church saw as they followed you and as they pursued you. That you added daily the people who were being saved, who were being healed. And the Christian community would stand up and sacrifice what they have to benefit those in their midst. Jesus, be merciful to us. Lead us and help us to know more of your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.